I invite you to take a copy of the Bible and turn to Zechariah chapter 6. God is calling to His people, return to me and I will return to you. The message of this book overall is this invitation. It's God's loving intention to draw near to His people in blessing and grace. His people who have wandered, His people who have rebelled, His people who have been in exile now for 70 years because of their idolatry and rebellion, God is yet again drawing near to them. And He's inviting them to come back to Him. Return to covenant obedience. Return to right worship. Return your hearts to me, and I am returning to you. That's the the theme. That's what's going on historically uh, in this time as the, the exiles are returning to the land of Judah and the process of rebuilding their temple in Jerusalem has started and stalled. And now God has sent Zechariah and his contemporary Haggai to call to the leaders and the people to get back to work. Right? Return to me, return to obedience, and the life of covenant blessing and faithfulness and grace will yet again be yours as the people of God. And he's got some very specific exhortations and promises. Promises of blessing, promises of drawing near through his anointed ruler and priest. So the first roughly half of this book has been comprised of eight night visions that Zechariah apparently had on one night, one after the other. And then he's reporting on these visions to the people, and he's written them down so that we have access to them all these years later. So a quick summary of the visions, because we've looked at all eight of those visions, and now there's a, there's a, a sort of what's called a sign act, and we'll talk about what that is in just a minute, that sort of finishes off this section and really summarizes the point of all of these visions. And so I, I, I talked about how the, the, the visions are structured in what's called a chiasm, it's sort of like a, a triangle where the, the pieces on the outside resemble each other and moving into the, the point. So the thing in the middle is the most important piece of that whole thing. So the, the first vision in chapter 1, verses 7 through 17, reveals God's heart for his people. Right? He's, his wrath has turned to jealousy for them. Uh, his heart toward their enemies uh, has, has been stirred toward wrath and anger. And he tells them that the rest of the nations, the rest that the nations enjoy, will soon be uh, disrupted by divine justice, right? So that was the first image, the the first vision. Then the second and third visions, which take up the second half of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2, promise to fulfill God's covenant promise to Abraham. Back in Genesis 12, he had told Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless, and those who dishonor you, I will curse. And so the second and third visions really pertain to God's cursing of the nations who have dishonored Abraham, that is, who have been oppressing God's people. And so those who have been your oppressors, I will oppress. And so we have these images in, uh, in chapters 1 and 2 that make that point. Divine judgment is coming against the nations who had oppressed Israel and Judah. Skip ahead a little bit to the sixth and seventh visions. That's in chapter 5, both of those. And God promises to rid Judah of injustice and to remove the sort of residue of Babylon from their land. 
right? So we saw the sin of Babylon sort of being carried away from Judah and being enshrined in a temple, uh, a pagan temple in Babylon, right? And so God is saying, I will deal not only with the, your out, outer enemies, your external enemies, I will deal with your internal opposition, your own sin, your own unrighteousness will be removed from you. And then the eighth and final vision, which took up the first half of chapter six, reveals the new situation. Judah's enemies have been judged. The spirit of God is at rest and the people are dwelling in peace. The only thing missing in that summary, of course, is the figure at the center of these messages. The one prophesied in visions four and five, which were in chapters three and four, respectively. Chapter three showed us Joshua, who would represent God's people as a pure priest. His robes were dirty and God cleansed him and clothed him in new robes and set him to work in the temple. So Joshua, the high priest, represents God's people. And then the vision in chapter four showed us uh, God's ruler, Zerubbabel, from the family of David, who would lead, God, lead God's people in the rebuilding of the temple, right? So thus fulfilling the, the Davidic king, the lineage of David, fulfilling that role in leading the people. And so these two men, Joshua as the priest and Zerubbabel as the, the ruler, he's really a governor, he's not called king, but he is the one ruling and leading over God's people at this time. These two men, of course, prefigure a messianic servant yet to come, the priest and king. And as if to drive that point all the way home, it's like I've given Zechariah all these strange visions with these images uh, that symbolize all these realities. Now the Lord instructs Zechariah to perform a sign act. You might think of it as something like performance art. It's some act that's done visibly and publicly that people can see that illustrates the truth that he's been communicating thus far through all of these visions and sermons, the messages accompanying the visions. And so Zechariah's public action is what takes uh, uh, up the second half of chapter six. And it poignantly reiterates the main point of this book and indeed the ultimate hope of all of God's children. Namely, God will bring his people safely into their eternal home where they will live in peace and joy under the good reign of their priest and king, Jesus Christ. Zechariah's readers, of course, wouldn't have known the name of Jesus, but they certainly would have been able to see and understand the, the messianic overtones of these images. And this sign act in particular is a very forward-looking act. And it has two components, an action and a message, or if you will, a symbol, and an explanation, which has been the process, the pattern of all of these, these visions that Zechariah's had. He sees something strange, and then an angel interprets it. So now Zechariah essentially does the same thing in the presence of the people, especially among the leaders of the people that we'll talk about. So he does something publicly demonstrable and, uh, and symbolic, and then in the latter half of, it, he, of this passage, he explains what that means. So there's symbol and there's explanation. So let's uh, look first at the sign act itself. I'm going to read for you just verses 9 through 11. This is where the, the action happens before he explains what it all is. Chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And the word of Yahweh came to me. Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, 
and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And that's where the action stops, because in verse 12, you can see it starts, and say to him, and now it's going to be the explanation of what that means. So it's a short action, but there's a number of important components to it. First, I want you to notice these men that are listed in verse 10. Take from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, and also to go to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Now, that's a lot of Hebrew names, and we're like, who are these guys? Uh, very easy to just go, don't know, don't care. These are all priests. These are priests. They're from the tribe of Levi. These are men who are appointed to serve the people of God in the temple, leading the people in worship, uh, contributing to the, the right worship and sacrifice uh, of, uh, of the people of God and uh, thus serving God in that way. So these are leaders of Israel, Israel's worship, and they are specifically those who have returned from exile. Right? So we know that people have been returning, the Jews have been returning from Babylon. And so among the people who have returned, he lists several priests. Go and find these priests. So these are priests of Israel, servants of God in the temple, which hasn't yet been rebuilt, who are from among the exiles. Don't be confused there. I was at first. Josiah is not the same Josiah that was the king before the exile, and Zephaniah is not the Zephaniah who was the prophet during that time, all right? So they're both same names, different dudes. Uh, Josiah appears to just be one of these priests, all right, from, from among the, the exiles who have returned. So it centers on the priests. That's the first thing to notice. Okay, so this image, this public act, this sign act has to do with the leaders of Israel's worship. That's significant. Second, I want you to notice the silver and gold from Babylon. Silver and gold from Babylon. Because look, he's, he says, take from the exiles and names these, these priests, but he doesn't yet say what to take in verse 9. He says, take from them, and then he names them. And then he, down in verse 11, he says, take from them silver and gold. Now, where are they from? They're from Babylon. Right? They've been in exile in Babylon, and they've returned. The silver and gold have come from Babylon. Zechariah's contemporary prophet, Haggai, said in uh, Haggai 2, verses 7 to 9, that God would bring the wealth of the nations into Jerusalem and would use it to make his house glorious. So Haggai prophesies the wealth of the nations is coming into Jerusalem and, and it will, the temple will be rebuilt and it will be glorious and beautiful. Well, here it is. It's gold and silver from these priests who carried it with them from Babylon. They sort of plundered the land of Babylon as they came, as God always does, right? When the people of Israel left Egypt, he did the same thing. The people of Egypt were just giving them all the stuff. Hey, here's all our jewelry and all our cattle. Just, just get out, right? And thus it says they plundered the Egyptians in the same way as they're leaving Babylon. They're going with all the stuff, right? Sure, here, here's our gold. Here's our silver. Here's our jewelry. Take it. So the gold and silver carried over from Babylon is now what is going to be used in this sign act. And it will, will, as we'll see, become a component of the temple itself. So the silver and gold that, that Zechariah is to take from these priests who have returned from exile in Babylon is literally the wealth of the nations coming into Jerusalem. So he takes silver and gold from these priests returned from exile 
and he makes a crown. Now, this doesn't take a lot of imagination. A crown is clearly a symbol of royal authority and of majesty. It's not just a sign that this guy's in charge. It's also a symbol of power, a symbol of wealth, a symbol of beauty. The fact that it's made from gold and silver. And in fact, the Hebrew is actually a plural. It says make crowns. We don't think that means literally there are multiple crowns that, that are on one person's head, but simply that there are these multiple rich materials that are sort of used together to form this crown. So it's a rich crown. It's a beautiful crown. So it's a symbol of beauty and majesty. It's a symbol of power and authority. Clearly the one who wears the crown is the king. He's the one who rules. He's the one who's in charge. And so Zechariah is to take the gold from Babylon along with these priests, the leaders of Israel's worship, and to fashion a crown, the symbol of authority and majesty. And where is he supposed to place it? On the head of Joshua. Set it on the head of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Joshua was the high priest who was featured in chapter 3, that vision where he had the dirty robes, and he was cleansed, and he was clothed, and he was commissioned to service in the temple. And it's important to think about what does the high priest do? Why is it so significant that the crown is being placed on the head of the high priest? Three things. The high priest goes into the presence of God. He alone, right? The people of Israel aren't all invited into the Holy of Holies in the temple. Only the high priest, then only once a year on the Day of Atonement. So he goes into the presence of God on behalf of the people. Number two, he represents the people, right? So he goes into the presence of God not only for his own sake, but on behalf of all of the people. He carries sacrifices for the people's sins into God's presence, into uh, and sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat and all of that, all right? So he goes into God's presence, he represents the people of God, and he offers acceptable sacrifice. Because God had rules, God had expectations and demands for how he was to be worshipped and how sacrifice was to be made and what was an acceptable offering and what was an unacceptable offering. Friends, we often are far too casual in our approach to God, are we not? God has concern for how he is worshipped. God has concern that we regard him as holy when we come to him. And often the worship of, of Christians, even in our day, is far too loose and flippant and casual and costs us nothing. And the image that we see that the worship of God under the old covenant in this system over and over would highlight to the people, God is holy. God is righteous. We are sinners. We are stained. We have to take with how we enter his presence. And so the high priest who does all these things, who represents the people, who goes into the presence of God, who offers acceptable sacrifices, he is the one on whose head this crown, this symbol of royal authority and of majesty is to be placed. And so the crown on the head of the high priest, that's the authority and the worship of God together shows us the intertwining of the Davidic kingship, that is a king who would reign in the house of David, and the Levitical priesthood, that is a descendant of Levi serving God in the temple and leading the people in worship. So 
the, the shape of Israel's life and worship and covenant blessing would take on this intertwined reality of a king in the line of David and a priest representing the people of God uh, before God and making acceptable sacrifice. And this one act combines those two realities. That would never actually be the case in the, the nation of Israel historically where one person played both of those roles. The high priest was never also the king and vice versa. There was a king and there was a high priest, right? They were clearly supposed to work together. They were both supposed to hear from God, represent God, uh, lead the people in the, the honoring and worship of God, obedience to his law and covenant. But they were never the same person. God's long-standing promise was to rule over his people as their king, to bless them with his wise and benevolent authority. And the shape of that blessing would come alongside the the right worship of God, the intertwining, if you will, of the kingship of David with this Levitical priesthood. So, to summarize the action, the sign act, you've got Joshua, who represents priestly purity, you might say, and you've got the crown, representing kingly authority, put together in one person, showing us God's king and priest. Now, in the day of Zechariah, as the Jews are rebuilding the temple and starting to renew their life uh, uh, under the covenant. This is most immediately, and obviously Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest. But the sign has more significance than merely historical uh, and a far wider audience than only the Jews after the exile. More on that in a minute. But just note, before we move on to the message, uh, Zechariah's explanation of what this sign represents just notice the kindness of god in giving us a visual aid isn't that helpful so there's lots of words there's lots of things he could say and he does say lots of things the bible is filled with god's words clearly is interested in, in communicating with words to his people but the the fact that he gives a visible sensory sort of tangible action something that people can see and perceive just shows God's heart to communicate himself, to reveal himself to his people. He wants his people to know him, in, and he will take every means possible to get this message home to him. Incidentally, I think this may be part of the reason why Christ has given his church the ordinances, the baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's a recurring, visible, tangible, sensory depiction of Christ's death in the supper that we take, and our union with him and our baptism, right? Baptism, you are buried with Christ under the waters of baptism and raised uh, with him in new life. And so the supper and baptism give us these visible pictures, these tangible sensory experiences that preach to us, in a sense, the gospel, that tell us about God's heart for his people and what God has done to redeem us and to make us his. So God has always been interested in giving his people visual, visual, sensory, tangible reminders of his faithfulness. And so that's what the people get here in the forming of a crown from gold from Babylon and silver from Babylon and placing it on the head of Joshua, the high priest. All right, let's look at the next few verses. I'll start reading in chapter 12, uh, it's not chapter, verse 12 of chapter 6. And we will hear the message. This is the, the, the explanation of the symbol that we've just seen. And say to him, that is to Joshua, 
He's placed the crown on the head of Joshua. And verse 12 says, And say to him, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. For he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build a temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of Yahweh, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of Yahweh as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of Yahweh. And you shall know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of Yahweh your God. Well, the explanation of this sign act centers on a prophecy concerning somebody called the branch. The branch. He places the crown on the head of Joshua and says, Behold, the branch. Appears as though he's saying that about Joshua. But in the context of this, of the visions we've seen and of the symbolic nature of this sign act, clearly Joshua is standing in for someone else. So he is not himself the branch. He represents the branch. So we got to take up that question. Who is this branch? When he says he will branch out from this place, another possible way to translate the Hebrew wording, wording there is that a shoot will shoot up in his place. So there's kind of a play on words there. And so when you see the branch, sometimes it's shoot. We've seen the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11, a uh, shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. This is the same, uh, the same idea, the same language. And that phrase, speaking of a shoot shooting up in his place, is often used in the Old Testament to refer to the son of a king taking the place of his father on the throne. So when the son came into power and displaced the father from the throne, he was said to have shot up, to shoot up in his place. Right? So the son has taken the throne uh, from his father. And so the shoot, shooting up in Joshua's place, indicates that God's coming messianic king would take Joshua's place. That is, he would be crowned as king over Yahweh's people. So whoever this branch or this shoot is will be the one who reigns as king over God's people. And then we're told a number of things about what he will do. We're told twice he will build the temple of Yahweh. Again, in the immediate context, there's an actual physical temple to, to be rebuilt. And he's already told Zerubbabel, you will do this, right? You will succeed in building the temple. But we're looking much further beyond just the this immediate historical context. We're told he will bear royal honor. That is like glory, beauty, majesty. He will be noble. He will be beautiful. We're told he will sit and rule on his throne. Again, a throne is where a king sits. And the throne is the place of authority and power and sovereignty. And then he says, this is very interesting. There will be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace will be between them. So here we have a king who sits and reigns on his throne. And there's also a priest on his throne. Are we sharing the throne? This is a very unusual image. It's a very unusual reality. I think of two people sitting on the throne. And it's perhaps even stranger to think that one of the two on the throne is a priest 
That's not the role of a priest. The priest is the one who serves God in the temple and leads the people in offering sacrifices. And yet we're told, Joshua is told by Zechariah, that the king who will reign on the throne will also sort of share his throne with a priest. And the council of peace will be between them. I think that means they will be in full agreement and union and harmony with one another. The king's crown and the priest's robe belong together. You couldn't necessarily see that just from looking at chapters 3 and 4, the image of Joshua and his clean robes and Zerubbabel and the plumb line in his hand and God saying, you will rebuild. You couldn't necessarily tell that from uh, those images on their own, but here clearly the crown of the king and the robe of the priest are united together. For Israel, these two roles were always played by different people, as I said earlier. Earlier, Zechariah's visions show us Zerubbabel and Joshua as playing those roles in this part of history. But in the age of the Messiah, the kingly crown and the priestly robe were to be worn by the same individual, namely the branch. The branch will be the one who both wears the king's crown and wears the priest's robe. He is king and he is priest, the one who will forever serve God's people as both their priest, that is, making their worship acceptable to God by the sacrifice of his own flesh, and as their king, ruling over God's people in this age, in the church, by his word, and in the age to come, when he dwells with his people in peace. The branch is God's Messiah. The branch is Jesus Christ, who is both king and priest for his people. I'm going to flip back to Jeremiah and read you a few verses. Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah was a prophet right before the exile. He had the unenviable task of warning the people to no avail that they should return to the ways of God or judgment and, and exile were going to come. And they didn't, and it did. So 70 years of exile has now happened. So we're, this is the front end of the exile where Jeremiah is warning the people. And here's what he promises concerning his covenant with David in Jeremiah chapter 33, beginning in verse 15. In those days, is in the days of Messiah, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. Yahweh is our righteousness. For thus says Yahweh, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. Now, the ones who heard Jeremiah's prophecy there probably assumed, oh, that means God's always going to provide somebody from David's line to be our king. And he's also going to provide some other guy from the tribe of Levi who can be our priest. But clearly, this is looking farther beyond. Clearly, this is looking not just to the individual fellas who would perform these roles for Israel through the years. He's looking to the branch, this one coming Messiah who would be both their king and their priest. And so the sign act of the crown on the head of Joshua is a sort of visual 
picture of that prophecy from Jeremiah chapter 33 before the exile even happened that God would provide a king and priest for his people who would always be in power, who would always be there to represent his people. In verse 14, we're told that the crown is to be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder. It's a permanent reminder for those men who are serving in the temple. They see this crown all the time. This crown that was made from gold and silver from Babylon that was placed on the head of Joshua to represent God's rule through his king and priest. This crown is in the temple as a constant visual reminder to the priests of God's continued presence and his promised blessing. And it ends in verse 15 with a very poignant hope of the gospel for those who are far off. And here's where I think you and I come into this story. Verse 15. Those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of Yahweh. And you shall know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you. That is Zechariah speaking this to the people. You will know that God sent me to you because this will come to pass. So the fact of these people from afar coming to help build the temple, the fact that that happens will sort of verify and, and validate the prophecy that Zechariah has here made. And so it probably has an immediate historical fulfillment in the temple's construction. As Jews are continuing to return from Babylon, those who are far off who will help build the temple probably refers to Jews who will return from Babylon exile and pitch in and begin contributing to the work of building the temple. But it points farther forward to the building of the new temple, that is, the church, through the atoning work of Jesus, by whom Jews and Gentiles, those who were far off, are built together into a spiritual house. So let me take you to Ephesians chapter 2. You're welcome to turn there if you like. I'll be there for just a minute. Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 11 through 22, Paul paints a beautiful picture of the, the work that Christ has done through his sacrificial death to bring together those who had been separated, the Jew and the Gentile, that is the non-Jew, right? Jews and everybody else. And so he says, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hand, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's your condition if you're separated from the covenant people. But now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Verse 17 tells us that he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. The council of peace will be between them. The 
counsel of peace is now preached by Christ himself to those who are near and to those who are far off. So those who are far off is more than just the Jews who will return to Judah and help build the temple in Zechariah's day. Those who are far off is you and me. Those who are far off are those who were separated from God without hope in this world who by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus have been brought near to him. And in this, God's covenant with Abraham comes into crystal clear view, doesn't it? Those who are far off prefigure the Gentile peoples who would be grafted into the olive tree of Israel, to use Paul's language in Romans 11. Just as he told Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Those who are far off are those families of the earth. Those who are far off are those who have been brought near through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on account of our sin in our place. The help of the Jews building the temple surely prefigures the united church of Jesus. The spiritual temple he is building on the foundation of his own life, death, and resurrection. We who are in Christ have been brought near by his blood. If you are not in Christ and you are hearing this word, it is not too late. You may draw near because he has drawn near to you. You may respond with faith and repentance and call upon the name of Christ and your sins will be covered and you will be brought near, brought into that family, that one people that God is creating through Christ for himself. There's a call at the very end here to, uh, to faith-fueled obedience. You look at that last phrase, this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of Yahweh your God. There's a call to obey. There's a call to faithfulness. Remember the covenant. Zechariah's sign act looks far beyond the completion of the Jerusalem temple in, in Zechariah's own day. The branch is not just a nickname for Joshua, the high priest. The entire act and the words that accompany it are intended to point Israel beyond their own day and circumstance to when God would ultimately fulfill all his promises to them in the person of his anointed Messiah, Jesus Christ. And I wondered for a little bit, why? Why would God give this far-reaching promise to a people who were very concerned with the immediate need of their day? We've got to rebuild the temple. It's a mess. We've got a foundation and nothing else. Why are you talking about something that's going to happen in some future messianic age of which I'll have no part? What good will it do the people of Israel to hear about God's blessing for some future generation? And I think the answer is something like this. The hope of tomorrow's fulfillment provides strength for today's stewardship. The hope of tomorrow's fulfillment provides strength for today's stewardship. We are entrusted with work. We are given a mission. We are given a message to steward and to share and to proclaim. We are called to lives of holiness. Those are not easy things. In fact, apart from Christ and his spirit of work in us, they're impossible things. How will we be compelled, motivated to continue along the difficult path of holiness? The difficult path of courage and boldness in the face of opposition. Perhaps one key way 
is to remember the blessing that God has promised in the future. We don't yet experience it. We may not experience it in this life. But God will one day bring about the fullness of his kingdom. All his promises will be fully and finally realized in Christ. And that awareness, that knowledge, that confidence gives us reason, gives us strength to carry out the stewardship that he's given to us today. What does that stewardship look like in your life right now? What is God calling you to do? What costly obedience is he calling you to? Perhaps thinking on the future fulfillment that God has promised to his people will give you strength to take steps of faith and obedience. Maybe we need that reminder. Your sin, your mishaps, your unexpected twists and turns in the road have not derailed God's good purposes for you. He will surely fulfill them. Continue on the road of obedience, believing in faith that your inheritance is kept in heaven for you and ready to be revealed in the last time. The Jews in Zechariah's day were called to obey God's word and build the temple. The Christians today are similarly called to obey God's word and to be busy about the work of building God's new temple, his church, until the day of Christ's return, when his glory will fill the new creation and the entire earth will be his temple. Let's pray together.